Things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 440. It is Friday, May 21st, 2010. And what are we going to talk about today? Um, I decided after yesterday's show that I left a couple things undone. I, I didn't talk about puts and calls, which I think are two of the most uh, confusing things in the financial sector out there. And it's not necessary for you to know about those two things to a point where uh, you can go out and be an options trader tomorrow. And I, I will never be selling how to invest in stocks as, a, as an informational product or anything like that. This is about survival. This is about your financial IQ. This is about modern times. This is about understanding monetary policy. And above all, it's, it, it's about understanding the misdirection and bullshit that comes from the nightly news. And I don't care whether it's Fox News or CNN or your local station. There's a a lot of terms that are thrown around out there, and things like naked short selling uh, are being thrown around right now with some new regulations from Germany. And I don't want to sway your opinion on, on, on these terms or anything else I'm going to talk about today, much as I did yesterday. I'm going to try to be in educational mode today. I'll try to be entertaining. I'll give you some opinion. But I want you to form your own opinion about these things. But above all, I want you to understand them. So we're going to talk about uh, options trading. Uh, and not from a standpoint of like trying to make you an options trader, but just from a standpoint of understanding what an option is, what it does, how it works. And we're going to talk about a lot of other things. We're going to talk about what a derivative is and uh, how it actually is an option and how the two things are the same, but they get used in different places. In other words, all options are derivatives, but not all derivatives are stock options, that type of thing. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about P.E. ratios and dividends. I'm going to talk to you about what a drip is. I'm going to talk to you about what those nebulous terms like A, B, and C shares in your mutual funds are. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what an annuity is, and, and that's going to be the show today. I know that sounds like financial 101. Uh, consider it financial 501 by the time we're done with it, and uh, I will try to uh, to make it entertaining as well as educational. I know this show is th- these types of shows are not the ones some of you guys want. Uh, I try to bounce around for you. One day I'm talking about fishing or hunting. The next day I'm talking about improving your property for wildlife attraction. The next day I'm talking about storing food under your stair steps. The next day I'm talking about developing an evacuation plan. And sometimes I'm going to talk about politics, economics, and money. Because if you think about it, if you didn't have any of your congressional clowns doing anything stupid and you had all the money you could possibly want, a lot of the other things wouldn't matter that much because you could set yourself up however you wanted to. Money plays a critical role, and as well, we need to understand one of the greatest threats that we have in the next 50 years is the financial collapse of the world and or the United States. Uh, With that being the case, we need to be informed about these things. Before we get deep into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, take care of our sponsors because they take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, MERS-radio.com. That is M-U-R-S-radio.com. MERS radios are cool. Basically what they are is a, a radio you can use without any kind of a license or additional certification and training. 
And what they allow you to do is have communications with uh, anybody else tuned into the same frequency. They're not a long-distance communication product. We're talking a mile or two in distance. They're mainly used by people on their own property or in small neighborhood patrols or things like that. They also have the ability to have, with the systems, a base station that can stay in a home and be plugged into the wall and be always on monitoring a specific frequency and motion detection as well. So, for instance, I have my MERS uh, system set up. My handhelds pretty much stay on charge unless we're using them for something. But my base station stays on, and I have motion detectors in my back in front of my property, and I know when things are going on, like somebody showed up, and I wasn't expecting anybody, and I can see who that is, or my dog's trying to get out of the backyard, or my dog's trying to kill somebody trying to get into the backyard. Uh, all of those are valuable little pieces of information to have. MERS makes it possible for me. Uh, next today, sponsor day number two, the Berkey Guy with uh, Berkey Light Water Filter Systems. Uh, when you want really clean, fresh water, uh, which should be every day of your life, Berkey water filters are a great way to make that happen. And the Berkey guy uh, is, is just a great guy, man. He's not just great because he has Berkeys, but he's a great guy overall. He really, I've had, been on the phone with him a few times. He, he really cares about his customers. He cares about what he's doing. He's, he works really hard to make sure that his customer service is second to none. And I know that a lot of people that I've heard feedback from on the Berkey guy have told me, I've phoned him up to ask him a few questions. When I placed my order, he threw something extra in for me just to take care of me, especially on first orders. Uh, that's pretty cool. He also gives away uh, free uh, Berkey uh, sport water bottles on every order if you're in the MSB. So if you're an MSB member, remember support brigade member, you're going to buy something from the Berkey guy, pick the phone up and call him because that's the only way to make that little bonus happen. All right, uh, next up today is, uh, remember, we have our gear shop. We have shirts, we have hats, we have coins, we have decals, we have badges, we have all kinds of cool stuff. I will be making a video for the new product, which is going to be the uh, the really cool mug, the really cool travel mug, uh, which is going to be uh, branded with TSP brand uh, today. I don't know if I'll get it up today, but I'm going to make the video today. Uh, but check out the gear shop. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. 20 videos from me that are available nowhere else on great things like making the strawberry planner, uh, how to be a better rifleman, a little bit on Russian, Russian martial arts, uh, all kinds of great stuff there. A bunch of free ebooks, a bunch of discounts. Really good program. Check it out. You can find the Member Support Brigade at thesurvivalpodcast.com. And with that, we'll go ahead and get into today's show. Um, again, I want to talk about financial IQ. I want to talk about knowing what terms are, what they mean, so that when you hear something on the news, uh, for instance, one of the things we've heard a lot, we're hearing it now because of the situation in Europe, and we heard it back when the crisis began here in the United States with the current recession, and that is naked short selling. They're, they're just out there and they're destroying the market with naked short selling. Now, um, can I say that there's been no negative impact on our marketplace by negative short selling? Absolutely not. But this is what I can tell you with even more certainty. The average person out there who hears this on the news and thinks, we have to do something about this, doesn't know what it means to be naked in the market. Okay? You know what it is to be naked under on God's green earth, right? The way you came into it in your birthday suit, all right? But you don't, and I'm not saying you individually, but the average person out there, no, it's upset, it's angry, no idea. You may not either. If you don't know, don't be upset. Don't feel like sending these talking down. You you just don't know something yet. By the end of the day, you'll know what it means. They also don't know what short selling means. 
Most people, I think, in today's day and age understand that a short seller wants the market to go down. They don't understand what the short sale is, how it works, how the guy profits if the market goes down, and what, if any, impact selling short actually has. They don't really get it. They don't really get it at all. And they don't know how you create a short. They don't know what a call is. A short is also called a put. There's two kinds of options in the stock market, two kinds of generally accepted options. One is a put, the other one's a call. So let's start out with um, one of the most misunderstood things uh, out there, which is just basically what is a short. What is a short sale? Uh, what is it? It's also called a put. What does it mean to short the market or to go short or, or any of these other terms we hear thrown around? Short selling is <clears throat> really nothing more than purchasing an option to sell. That's it. So let's do some hypothetical numbers. We have a thousand shares of stock trading at ten dollars a share. We'll call it ABC Corp, right? So I believe that ABC Corp is going to go way down below eight dollars in the next six months because all of these options have time limitations. You can buy an option for ninety days. You can buy an option for thirty days. You can buy an option for a year. The longer the term of the option, generally, the more expensive it is because it's like insurance. If you want to insure your car for a month, it costs one fee. If you want to insure your car for a year, it costs more. Why? There's a greater probability that something will go wrong with the insurance over a year. The person writing you the insurance policy assumes greater risk based on time because there's more things that are unknown. Same with a stock option. If I'm writing you an option on a stock for 30 days, and I know they don't even have an earnings report coming out for 30 days, short of the nuclear bomb going off or something, that stock's pretty stable. It's a pretty safe option. I'll write that option pretty cheap. If I'm writing you an option over a year, I have multiple earnings reports. I have people that can get fired. I have th entire swings in the economy. I mean, there's so many things that can go on. You're going to pay more for that option. Supply and demand, basic pricing. All right? But the key is, no matter what the option is, I'm going to pay less for the right to control the stock than purchasing the shares today. Okay, because I can buy another kind of option we'll get to in a second called a call, which is where I'm betting it to go up in the future. But one way or another, I use a little bit of money to control a lot of stock. Okay, so I go and I buy the stock or I buy the option from you. You write me the option. You say, I will buy ABC Corporation stock for $8 a share any time that you need me to uh, between now and, 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 and the end of this option. I'll pay 8 bucks at 10 I don't believe it's going to go down there. If it does, I'll buy it. I'll be your security blanket, so to speak. Now, what I do is I hope that that stock goes below $8 a share. Let's say it goes to $5 a share. What I'll do then is I will require you to uh, buy from me 1,000 shares of ABC Corporation at $8 a share. What happens, though, is, of course, I buy the stock from the open market because it's trading at 5. I buy it at 5, and I sell it to you at 8, and I'm guaranteed that you have to buy from me. That's a short sale. You lose $3 a share. That's it. That's the whole thing. If the stock price went to $8 a share, exactly the strike price during the time of the option, what's most likely to happen is absolutely nothing. Does it make sense for me to buy at 8 and sell it to you at 8? The commission fee is going to be my loss. 
it has to go down a certain amount below the stri- what they call the strike price. And in any options contract, the agreed upon pr- price of buy or sell is called the strike price. Okay? So unless it goes enough below 8 to make the transaction profitable, the option expires. You keep my money. And if the transaction decides I might have paid you $500 for that. So nothing happens. You make $500 for agreeing to, to, uh, to buy stock from me in the future by writing me the option to sell to you at agreed upon price. That's it. That's the whole thing. There is no more. Now, um, let's talk about, before we talk about what naked means, let's talk about what a call is. A call is an option to buy. Okay? A call is an option to buy. Same scenario. I look at ABC Corporation this time, and I say, you know what? Over the next six months, these guys have some really cool stuff coming out. I believe in this company. I think they're going to go far in the future. But I don't want to tie up uh, you know, $10,000 in them to control 1,000 shares of stock. I want to buy the right, all right to buy them in the future for hire. So I say I think these guys are going to be 16, 17 bucks by the end of this next uh, two quarters, this next six months, right? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out. I'm going to spend $500, and from another party, I'm going to purchase the right to buy ABC Corp at $12 a share. No matter what happens, the other party has to sell me a thousand shares at $12 a share. If the price goes to $50, they still have to sell me a thousand shares, right, at 12 bucks anytime during the period of that option. Now, let's say that we are sitting on the option, we come to the end of the option and the stock goes up, but it only goes up to $11.75 or rate to 12 where it goes down to 8 bucks. Anything in there. What happens to the option? Again, it doesn't make any sense for me to exercise my option uh, right, because if it's trading at eleven seventy five and my option is I have the right to buy it from you for twelve, why would I do that? I would just at the end of the option if I really wanted the stock still and I wanted to tie the money up at this point, I would buy it for eleven seventy five or eight bucks or wherever it was, wherever it was below the strike price. Let's say that the stock goes up to twenty dollars. Now you have to sell me because I have the right to buy. The call was an option to buy. I have the right to buy from you at 12. I can buy from you at 12 and immediately sell at 20. And because the stock option's already in the money, even if I don't have money, I can borrow money called margin for one day, one day minimum interest uh, and fees on it, to make that happen. And anybody anywhere will loan me that money because it's an instant transaction. They have the money back. I get charged for a day's interest even though I used it for five minutes. So as you can see, with options, there's ways to make a lot of money using a very small amount of money. And this leads us into something called going naked. Let's talk about a naked call first, because it's easier to understand uh, than a naked put or a naked short. A naked call is actually a lot riskier in some aspects uh, for the person writing the call. And uh, you'll understand how this works. So again, I come to you, and I say, I want to purchase the right to buy from you uh, a 1,000 shares of ABC Corp at $12. And you write that to me, and I write you a check for $500. We never meet each other. We never talk to each other. This all happens on the exchange. But that's what's really happened. Some real person or entity somewhere said, I'll do this, and somebody else somewhere said, I'll pay for the right to do this. 
And that happens. Now, you would believe that if I wrote that option for you, if I was the one that agreed to sell you a thousand shares of ABC at twelve dollars, that I indeed had a thousand shares of ABC stock. It doesn't matter what I paid for, I have the stock. I can now sell it to you. Okay? Because I have it. What if I don't have it? What if I just agree to do it, but I don't have the underlying security? I don't own the stock. I haven't secured it yet. It's not mine. It's out there floating. I'm gambling. I'm in Vegas, baby. Roll the dice. I get your 500 bucks, and if the stock doesn't go up, I keep it. I've used no money at all to do this, period. My money's doing something else for me in some other stock somewhere. Okay? Now, what happens, what happens when somebody comes out the morning of, you know, two to three days before this option expires and I'm kicked back and I've already spent your 500 bucks and I went out and bought some Cohiba cigars with it or something like that. And uh, all of a sudden, a major announcement comes out that this corporation's done something amazing or landed a major deal and its stock price that was sitting at 11.50, 11.70, somewhere where it was below the strike price, jumps to $18 that day. And I am sitting on the option, and I say, I'm calling the option, baby. You are going to uh, buy, or you're going to, you're going to sell me the stock, and you're going to sell me the stock for 12 bucks. You have to. It's a contract. But you don't have it. So what do you have to do? You have to raise enough money to buy a thousand shares at eighteen dollars a share or eighteen thousand dollars. You have to sell it to me for twelve or twelve thousand dollars. I immediately, as soon as I buy that stock from you, sell it. The second I get it, I sell it as fast as I want my hands off of it. I'm in the money. So I profit six thousand dollars directly at your expense. Because you were naked in the deal. Where the reality is if you had the stock in advance and it was at 10, you didn't make all the profit you could, but you profited 20%. You've, if, you, if you're holding the stock that you write a call on, it's like insurance. right? I'll take $500 as a premium against what I'm holding. The worst thing that will happen is the option will go in the money, I'll make 20%, and I'm good. If the option expires, I'll write another option. If that one expires, I'll write another option. If they, so every time it expires, I'll write an option against the stock I'm holding again at a price I'm already willing to sell for, understanding I might lose some upside. But if I do this for five years holding the stock and I never get called out, I get all of those fees basically for nothing, for being the insurance company. All right? But that's what naked means. I don't have the stock. When we look at naked short selling, it's a little more complicated to understand. And I could get real deep in a naked short selling. I'm going to try and make it as simple as I can. It basically works this way. The, the underlying security for the transaction is not secured prior to uh, the agreement on the option. So what happens is, in a short situation, all of the people that need to cover this, so the stock is now down to 6 bucks. And from the and it, so there's a two dollar spread for profit for the person with the option. Anybody on the other side of that option has got to sell the stock at the current market value as quickly as they can. They got to get rid of it because they got to stop the loss now, so that they can they can they can raise the money to buy it 
from the guy they agreed to pay eight for it. Because the one guy's in a short position, the other guy's in a long position is, is I guess, a way to look at it. That's probably more confusing. One way or another, the, the, the asset isn't there. So people start dumping to acquire, to buy back at a higher price. And they have to buy back at a higher price. Because everybody that's sitting on the, the short option is now selling at $8, while the market's trading at 6 And that triggers more sales on the low end. That drives the price to five, and then there's more panic. And anybody hold those securities that's in an options deal that has to pay eight, I got to get rid of it. Now, what happens if you do naked short selling? In that period of time, there actually appears on paper to be more shares of stock for sale than there really are. There's a greater supply than demand. Sometimes it's because the company screwed up, but the short selling aggravates the process. And what happens is that artificially deflates the value of the stock. The smart short seller, once he's executed his deal, goes back in and buys the devalued stock or a option to buy the devalued stock uh, when it comes back up and plays the other side of the option. So that's how that all works. But really, the simple explanation, a short, when you short a stock, you purchase the option to sell it. When you call a stock, you purchase the option to buy. When you purchase the option to sell, you want to purchase an option that's lower than the current price of the stock. When you purchase an option to buy, you end up purchasing an option to buy at a higher uh, price than it is because nobody's going to sell you the option to sell a stock today that's already a, a reverse strike price. In other words, I would never agree to purchase stock for you uh, to purchase stock from you today at twelve dollars a share when I could go buy it for ten. So that's puts, calls, shorts, longs, and naked. And when you hear this stuff, that's what's really going on. So what you need to understand, and what the news never tells you, is that the traders doing this are in a very risky business. It's not as easy as they make it out to believe, and they don't have as much control as you would be led to believe. It's a very risky thing buying an option, because if the option expires and it doesn't go in the money for you, you lose 100% of your investment, which may be relatively small compared to buying that much stock, but it's still all gone. Writing the option, selling the option, is a little less risky, especially if you're selling a call in the future. It's probably the safest thing you can do. It's a great way to make more money out of your investing, honestly. It's one of the few of the creative things that I actually think make a lot of sense. I'm holding a stock for $10 a share. If I can sell an option on it at a 20, 20% premium, I'll sell any stock I made 20% on, and I won't cry about it. So if I write that option and I get 500 bucks for it, and an option expires, I just made $500. If the option gets called out, let's say the stock goes to $14, the guy comes in and buys it, well, I still made 20% or $2,000 on that same thing. So I made $2,500. Now, the other guy... You know, he made four thousand minus his five hundred, so thirty five hundred. I can live with that. It's it, there is a place for options, and they're used as insurance against investments that you actually hold. When you do them without the security underlying them, they're naked. It is more complicated than that, and some people out there probably understand it maybe better than I do. And you're looking for me to get more. Com- I'm not going to get more complicated with it because I'll lose everybody if I do. Let's start. Let's go to something different. Probably the other thing that's difficult to understand today, and everything else I'll talk about today will be easy to understand and maybe uh, a little lighter subject. 
what's a derivative? We've talked about derivatives a lot. We heard a lot, a lot, a lot about financial derivatives in the housing sector during the economic collapse. Um, what is a derivative when we talk about not mathematics but financial? A derivative is simply a item considered an asset that has value because it derives its value from something else. In other words, it represents value rather than being value. Um, kind of ironic, your money is a derivative. All the money in your pocket today is a derivative. U.S. dollars are derivatives because they derive their value from the full faith and goodwill of the American people and government. They don't have a true underlying security. They suck value off the value of the nation itself. Where at one point, the dollar, a dollar represented a dollar in silver. A $20 bill represented $20 in gold. They were backed. Today, they're derivatives. In the world that we speak of, though, when we hear the term derivatives, they work more like a stock option. Uh, they're an option to buy or sell. But they may not, and, and every option is a derivative. Everything I just talked about is a derivative. But the financial derivatives go outside of the stock market. They go into the world of mortgages and financing. Where what happens is, I'm sitting here and I am a mortgage company. And I have a bunch of mortgages out there and everybody's paying their bills on time, but I start to look at the market and go, you know, there could be some hard times coming and some of these people may not pay me. So I package up a bunch of my mortgages and I go to a company like AIG that basically acts as an insurance company. And I say I want to purchase insurance against default on these mortgages. And AIG gives me an insurance policy and says if any of these people fail to pay, we'll pay for them. Or we'll cover some portion of the loss. Just like any insurance policy. You might go out and buy an insurance policy on your car. And they'll say, we cover everything. Of the replacement value, if anything that happens to it, we'll cover it. But here's a deductible. You are subject to the first $1,000 of cost with a $1,000 deductible. If you want a $100 deductible, you're going to pay a higher insurance fee. It's exactly how a derivative works. The more risk assumed by the person doing the insuring, the greater the fee that they charge. Now, in most instances... The, the deductible, we'll call it that, is sufficient because the lender knows some portion of people will always default on their home. They're buying above and beyond that. So as long as the economy stays steady, the insurance policy is just an insurance policy, just like you carry life insurance because you could die, but you don't expect to. The mortgage lender is carrying insurance in case he dies, but he doesn't expect it. Right? So, one day a lot of people stop paying the bills. If that's as far as it went, generally speaking, the insurer is able to step in and cover the spread for the financial institution issuing the mortgage, in this case, in a mortgage derivative. AIG bet that you wouldn't fail, you bet that you would fail, and you failed. So they have to cover it. But, if it stopped there, maybe things could have been rectified easier. What happened is, as AIG bought up more and more and more of these things, they sat and they looked at them, and not just AIG did this, lots of people did this, and said, hey, we have an awful lot of these insurance policies, these derivatives, and if the market starts to falter, we're going to have to pay up on all this, and if we had to pay up on all of it at one time, we can't do it. If we had to pay up on 50% of it, we can't do it. Maybe we need some insurance too. 
So they took my policy, your policy, if you're another bank, four or five banks' policies, and they put them together and created a new financial vehicle, all right, a new thing. And they went to somebody else and said, if you'll insure this group for us, we'll pay you a fee. And the person says, that seems pretty safe. Give me my money, I'll assume the risk. Then that person turned around and did the same thing with another party and did the same thing with another party. And some of these leveraged out 20 to 1. Every time the derivative passed value to a new group of policies, a new group of mortgages in this case, it assigned value that wasn't really there. The value took the place of the fee. The original fee, the one I paid IG to ensure my lending in my bank. The next fee came from the next institution buying it from AIG. And then the next, and every time that fee was done, that was basically printing money. That was creating money out of thin air. Because if I'm buying something with, a, with an assumed value, I can get credit on it so I can borrow money to make the purchase. So these derivatives were purchased with borrowed money all the way down. In effect, the entire marketplace in real estate was being covered by naked derivatives. The people holding the insurance policies didn't have enough money to cover the loss. So when a little bit of it started to fall apart, it started to fall apart and cascade everywhere. And that's where the government stepped in and dumped billions of dollars into AIG, billions of dollars into Freddie and Fannie to stop that from happening. That's what actually happened. This options trading was being done by everybody in the investment banking sector. And everybody was deferring risk to somebody else and charging, and then and the people getting the new risk were charging a fee to take it, and then reselling the risk and charging a fee to take it over and over and over again. So, they can blame the naked short, short sellers on the U.S. Stock Exchange or the World Stock Exchange all they want. Which one do you think had a greater impact? The derivatives of a stock or the derivatives on the derivatives on the derivatives of the real estate market. The entire stock market is worth, what, $13, $14 trillion, something like that? I don't know. Do you know how much derivative uh, was created in this over and over and over and over and over uh, effect? A quadrillion dollars at one point. I'll say it again, a quad trillion dollars. A quadri I don't even I, I can't begin to understand this. A quadrillion. I, I can't get my head around that. That's how big the real estate derivatives market was at one time. So let that be your filter. Let's move on to something a little easier to understand as an individual investor. What is a PE ratio? Or price to earnings ratio? PE ratio is actually pretty simple to understand. Um it's simply a ratio of what is the stock selling for versus what is the company earning. And while formulas are confusing, actually the, 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 the formula for a P-E ratio is very easy to understand. And when you understand the formula, the rest of it makes sense. So here's what you do. To, to get a P-E ratio for a stock, you take the total profit after tax and interest for the past year. How much money did this company make last year after all their expenses and tax obligations were paid? You divide that number by the total number of shares issued. So if the, the company's issued 10 million shares of stock, you take their profit, 
divided by 10 million shares. That gives you the earnings per share. Everybody holding a share has one share in the company. They're entitled to profit from the company. So the share, theoretically, should be worth whatever the company profits. So if we had, let's make small numbers, we had 1,000 shares of stock, and the company profited $1,000, each share of stock should be worth a dollar. That's what it's worth in a single year of profit. Each share represents $1 in profit. Okay, But then, you divide the price of the stock by the earnings per share. So, the stock's trading at $10, but it only made $1 a share. Make sense? So now we realize that the stock has a high P.E. ratio because it's earning far less than it's trading at. So the lower the P.E. ratio, the closer we are to a one-to-one relationship between a dollar earned and a dollar paid. You'll never see a dead-even one because stocks are purchased based on their future value. What will this company do over the next year, the next six months, the next three months, the next 10 years, the next 20 years, depending on the mentality of the investor. The more belief that there is that the company's going somewhere, the higher the P.E. ratio. Now, there could be companies with, an, with no P.E. ratio, none. Does that mean that they're one for one? No, it means that they're losing money. So if a company has uh, lost a million dollars last year, they have a million shares, and uh, their stock is trading at, uh, it doesn't even matter what the stock's trading, let's say $10 a share. It's got no P.E. ratio, nothing. It has no earnings. How can it have a ratio to earnings when it has no earnings? I guess it could have a negative one, but that's you know, it's still below zero, so we call it zero. So that's all P.E. ratio is. How much is the stock selling for versus how much it's earning? So when you see a stock with a really, really high P.E. ratio, that means it's been highly speculated by investors. It's like betting on a horse at the track. Everybody's throwing their money on this horse, even though you know we don't know if he's going to win or not. So is the horse likely to win? Well, in a, in a horse race, a lot of times that favorite horse is going to win or finish top three. In the business world, there's so many variables, it's not that simple. So if you would have looked at something like when before the dot-com crash, when Yahoo was trading for like $300 a share, their P.E. ratio was the same. And people kept buying it until the other side came. So when you're looking at individual stocks, it's, it's not your only indicator. A low P.E. ratio doesn't always mean it's a good buy. Maybe it's a, a company with a low P.E. ratio because it's, no one believes it's going anywhere because it isn't. It's just going to sit there. You know, maybe it's not going to lose, maybe it's not going to gain. It's just a good, solid, stable company. It's not really going to increase a lot of value. It's going to pay the same dividend it's always paid. Or maybe it's on an exchange where it doesn't pay a dividend. Right? But it's just a, it's just a, a sideways stock. So the reason its P.E. ratio is low is investors looked at it and went, this stock was trading for $32 a share in 1975. Today it's trading for $36 a share. It pays a relatively low dividend that we're only willing to, you know, no one's willing to pay more. We're going to drive it up. Nothing's going to speculate. So that low P.E. ratio may be an indicator that it's just a stock that, that's a horizontal, uh, a horizontal uh, uh, expert. You know, it just stays level. It could be because even though the stock's been profitable in the past, investors see problems for it in the future, and the value of the stock starts coming down because nobody wants to buy it. 
So low isn't always good, high isn't always bad, but ridiculously high is almost always bad. So it's just something to understand and something to look at. Um, another thing that we need to understand if we're going to talk about finances and, and, and investing is a dividend. What exactly is a dividend? People have a positive view of dividends, and I guess we should have a positive view of dividends because if we're the shareholder, it means we get money. All a dividend is is once the company pays all its executives and its bonuses and its salaries and its employees, and it pays the government, and it does everything it can to push its profit down as low as possible. This is something people don't understand. If I'm running a business, I want to, and I, it's my company, and I'm the president. I want to pay myself the biggest salary I can and take the profit out of the business. And I want to buy as many things for myself as I can that can be expensed as part of the business. So I want a great big car and a great big jet. And I don't want to own them as Jack Spearco. I want to own them inside Spearco Company. Because if I do that, they become an expense, either a depreciation expense or they become a lease expense or they become some sort of expense. So they come off my profit. Companies don't like to declare giant profits. When they do, they have to pay it as income tax. And then, if they're a company that pays a dividend, it gets distributed to the shareholders. So, the other side of this, though, is if I'm my own number one shareholder, I'm okay with this. right? If I'm president of Spearco Corporation, and we declare a huge dividend, and I hold 51% of the stock... It gets paid to me as a dividend, and that's even better than as a salary because I get it as a capital gain, which is not subject to taxation at the level that earned income is. So if I have a big salary, I'm going to pay more tax than if I collect it as a dividend as a shareholder because now it's, again, a capital gain. All right, so that's why these companies, even in spite of all these bonuses and things, like to issue stock because for the individual holding the stock, if it's paid as a dividend or the stock goes up and when they leave the company they sell their shares, they pay less tax on it. Now, don't think they're evil because they do this. This is the system that we're in. Any way that you can with mitigating your risk, you should be following the same procedure. This is not wrong. This is how it works. Anything you can do to minimize tax is a good thing for modern survivalism, right? So if you are going to be in business for yourself, you set your own business up as a microcosm of that. Now, you can't do it with the dividends per se, because you're not a publicly traded company. You may not have the shares. There's a lot of restrictions on a small company doing things like this. But you can certainly purchase everything for the business, use it, and get that use with the tax deduction. But that is a dividend. All it is is profit paid back to the shareholders. So if you're holding a 1,000 shares of stock and the company that you're invested in declares a dividend for the quarter of $0.25 cents a share, then they're going to send you a check for $25. That's your profit as a shareholder for that quarter. So if it happens four times in a year, you get $100 that year. That is in addition to if the stock price goes up, you sell it and make a profit. That's just a straight up, you're an owner in the business, here's your share of the profit. 100 bucks doesn't sound like a lot, but maybe you're one of a million shareholders. So when you break that big profit up over all those shareholders, the profit per individual share is relatively low. If that makes sense. Hopefully that it does. Except for the fact that I gave you the wrong number there. If you got a quarter dividend on a thousand shares of stock, that would be two hundred and fifty dollars. So you'd make a thousand dollars that year in that scenario as a shareholder. 
with a 25. That's a pretty good dividend. There's not a lot of stocks doing that. And the ones that are are relatively expensive. The, the higher the dividend a stock usually pays, the more expensive the price per share is because the investor says not only can this stock go up in value, but if they pay a healthy dividend, they're always profitable. Uh, then I'm in a situation where at least I know I've got that money coming in, and it may outweigh anything that a bank's going to pay me in interest. So that's the way to look at dividends. This also leads to another investment strategy called dividend capture, which is not without risk, but it's with minimal risk. If you know a company pays dividends, uh, they generally have a rule. You have to hold the shares, let's say, and different companies have different rules, but most situations it's like 90 days. If you want to collect a dividend on a stock, you have to hold it for at least 90 days before you collect the dividend. So if you think the next quarter is going to be profitable, 100 days before that dividend de declaration, you buy the stock. You hold it for 100 days. As soon as they pay their dividend, you dump it, and you've captured the dividend. So by putting your money in there for 90 days, you've acquired the dividend, and now you're free to do what you want. Unless the stock drops in value at a level higher than the dividend that they pay, you've either broken even or made a profit. It's a low-risk but low-profit strategy, but it can be used very effectively if it's used with the right companies at the right time. So that's a dividend capture. And that's why companies have rules so that I can't like go, hey, AT&T's released some preliminary earnings reports and they look really good and um, they're going to pay a dividend next week. And I go and I put $100 million in their capture of the dividend and then they sell their stock and dump the price of their stock because that many shares traded that fast. So that's why they put these limitations so that dividend capture can be used but not abused. So there you go. There's, there's a dividend. What is a drip? Drip is a low-tech thing for low-tech investors like me and you. Uh, when you get a dividend, you get a check. Well, let's say your check is for, I don't know, 40 bucks for your dividend, some stock you're holding. Uh, maybe you bought a little bit of stock. Your dividend's freaking, I don't know, $2.50 or what have you. Many companies have uh, a policy called DRIP, or Dividend, Re dividend Reinvestment Program. Okay, And what that means is instead of Exxon sending you your dividend for $100, they'll take your dividend and they'll issue you stock instead of cash. So if Exxon stock was trading at $50 and you had a $100 dividend, instead of getting $100, you just get two more shares of stock. I really, If you're holding a stock long and you believe in the stock and you're going to be keeping it for a while... Uh, I think it's the easiest thing for you to do is to set up a, a dividend reinvestment. And like I, for the little bit of stock trading I do, and I don't do a lot, but the little bit I do, I use E-Trade. And any stock that offers it, right when I set the stock purchase up, I can immediately set up dividend reinvestment. So when Southwest Airlines paid out a dividend, I got some fractional share of stock from Southwest Airlines. And I just added to my ownership at Southwest Airlines, which means the next time they pay a dividend, I'm going to get a dividend on what I already had plus the shares that I got from them as a dividend, and it's compounding. It's a lot like compounding interest that your financial liar tells you about uh, in your, your 401k or your IRA. So there you go. It's dividend and dividend reinvestment. Really simple, really easy to understand, but only powerful if you know what they are and you know what to look for and you make them part of your investment strategy. How many of your financial advisors out there, especially the, the generic ones for your 401k, say, hey, here's the funds, here's the mutual funds that pay dividends out of the, the ones that you have to pick? You have to go look for that stuff yourself. 
Um, with individual stocks, it's a little bit easier to control specifically with dividends, but there's funds that pay dividend as well. So when you have something that's dividend-oriented, generally the stock grows at a slower rate because it's, this, it's the safer play. It's more of the blue-chip play, right? That's a stock that's about making money. It's not a business model of rapid growth. It's sustained income over time. Not all stocks that pay dividends are that type of stock, but that is the lion's share of them, so to speak. So there you go. Moving on from there. This is one that's really, I don't know, this one pisses me off because you see it all the time, you hear it all the time, very few people understand it, and with the majority of Americans own mutual funds today. Thanks to 401ks and IRAs, almost every American that is uh, of, of you know lower middle income and up owns at least some mutual funds today uh, in some form uh, or shape, usually within a retirement account. And often you are faced with a choice of do I buy what they call class A, B, or C shares in a mutual fund. Have you ever wondered what the A, B, and C share in a mutual fund represented? Well, let's just go through it. It's really not hard to understand. Whenever you have a mutual fund, there is fees to be paid. The guy that's that master trader that they lie to you about, that's you know, looking out for you and buying and selling the, selling the stocks and managing the funds and paying to spend those huge prospectuses to you that you don't even read because you can't understand them. You know, you, you go out to your mailbox and you got like six prospectuses that are the same because you own six different funds in the same family, so they send you six of them and waste your money. All of that stuff costs money. When they go on TV and they say, come to Franklin Templeton or come to whoever, come to Janice, whatever, you know, Oppenheimer, whenever they do that, they, that, that's an advertisement to bring more money into the fund. You pay for that. You pay for that as a shareholder in the fund. You own a piece of the... That's the other thing people don't understand with a mutual fund. Before I even explain the shares, you have to understand that. When you buy shares of stock, I think it's pretty obvious. If you buy a 1,000 shares of stock, you're a small owner, but you are an owner in Exxon Corporation. You have ownership in Exxon. You have ownership in Google. You have whatever company you buy. When you buy shares in a mutual fund, you are an owner in that fund, a co-owner with thousands or millions of other people. And as an owner, you're entitled to profit and you're entitled to loss or expense. And any way that you're going to become an owner in that fund, you're going to be entitled to, whether you like it or not, expense. If, right? Even if you don't have a loss, you have a share in the expense. In other words, if you called me up and said, Jack, I'd like to be your partner in Survival Podcast. Well, first thing I'd do is tell you, no, I'm not taking partners. But if I said yes, right? And you said, great, well, I want half of your earnings. I'll buy in at half the value of TSP. And I said, sure, fine, do that. At the end of the year, you wouldn't get half of the revenue, right, half of all the money we took in. You would get half of my profit. You'd get half of the money after I paid all my bills, my electricity, my expenses, uh, my advertising fees. Uh, any, any expense I had would be backed out of the profit, and you would get a piece of what's left over. In a mutual fund, it works the same way. All of the things they do, including the salaries of the people that figure out what stocks to buy, what stocks to sell, there's fees. That's called a load in the fund. And even when they say there's no load, there's a load somewhere. Do you think this stuff's for charity? 
right? You don't see it directly, but it's always there. It means it doesn't come out of your money that you see, but it's a no-loan fund simply means that it's very much like the thing that I just described with TSP. You never see it come out of your money. You see the same equity in the company at 50%. I don't take it from your money up front. I take it in the back, and you never see it. So I pay you less of the profit because I didn't take any of it in the front side. So a Class A share actually works exactly the opposite way. When you buy the shares in the mutual fund company, they immediately take some of your money the day you make the purchase. All right? They say, okay, you're, you're putting $5,000 in. Or usually with a Class A share, they want uh, $25,000 as minimum. You're putting $25,000 in. We're immediately going to take, oh, I don't know, $1,500. So you never even have $25,000 worth of the mutual fund. You end up with $23,500 value in the fund. But what happens is you don't then pay the back-end expenses. The people with other shares do. With B's and C shares, they're not charged on the front end. They get charged on the back end. So they, when they buy their 25,000 shares, let's say, they get $25,000 worth of equity. But their dividend, their profit, what comes out is lower. That's simplified. Well, I'll explain it a little bit more later. But a Class A share, so I go in with a Class A share. I pay my fees up front. There's a lot of things that have uh, advantages there. One is... There's a, a set of fees called uh, 12B1 fees, which are another type of management fee. My fees are lower than yours. I also get something called breakpoints. So if I was buying 25000 I might hit the first breakpoint. So I get a discount on my fee. If I buy $50,000, i will hit another breakpoint. So the more I'm investing, for the longer period of time, the more it makes sense to go in and pay my fees up front because you get to pay the fees for a long time with a Class C share, and I get to pay the fee once, so to speak, and I get to profit for a long term. I also get what's called the right of accumulation with a Class A share. What that does is it gives me the opportunity to receive a discount on the front end load if I reach my first break point uh, with second installment. So let's say that I didn't buy enough to get my discount, but, this, uh, but when I put my next piece of funds in, the two combined together to get me the discount, they have to issue me the discount then as though I was making the whole purchase at once. right? Um, so those are some of the advantages to Class A shares. What are the, the disadvantages? Usually it's that they want a high initial investment. Uh, you either have to put a lot of money in up front or you have to write a letter of intent saying that over a certain period of time with regular contributions, I will buy at least this many shares of Class A uh, uh, in the fund. You also have to have a long-term time horizon. The funds are not uh, good for investors with a short-term horizon. For example, if your initial investment was $4,750, after you paid a $250 front-end fee, your investment and your investment increases by 3% during the course of the year, and you liquidate at the end of the year, you have lost $107. Uh, so what I mean by that is your fee outweighed your profit at 3%. So you might have to go into your second year, even with a, a fund that performs okay, to even get profitable. So Class A shares are for the long-term investor who's willing to make a sizable investment, commit to it long-term, and profit longer by paying less back-end fees. 
Class B shares kind of float between B and C, just like you would think. A Class B share is has to pay back-end and contingent deferred sales charges. Um, these shares are typically good for investors with little investment cash and long-term horizons. So Class B shares are a lot of what's in your mutual fund, or not your mutual fund, your 401k IRA. You're contributing small amounts over a long period of time. Here's how they work. First of all, they have no front-end fees. When you buy $50 worth of ABC Mutual Fund, that's exactly what you get. You get $50 worth of that fund. They also have, uh, which, again, this deferred sales charges, which means the longer you hold the shares, the lower your charges are. So if you sold a, a Class B share at the end of one year, you paid back-end fees as your management fee, you'll pay more than if you held it for five years. longer you hold it, the lower the price goes. Here's the really cool part. Over time, Class B shares automatically convert to Class A shares uh, after a certain period of time. So what that means is you don't pay the front-end fee, and if you hold it long enough, it becomes an A. And when it becomes an A, you pay less back-end fees. You get the same privileges as the investor that paid up front. Now, that only works out if you're putting small amounts of money in and weren't entitled to the discount of the Class A and you hold it long enough to, to realize the conversion or to see enough appreciated value that when you sell, you make a profit. That's the difference between an A and a B share. Um, the, the cons of that is, again, you've got to have a long time, time horizon. Two, you don't get any discounts. There's no break points. And they have higher expense ratios. While they're Class B shares, that management fee you pay is higher than the person who paid up front, which is only fair. Right? None of this is screwing you, but if you don't understand it, then it can screw you by your own lack of understanding. A Class C share. This is what's called a level load fund. Uh, this class works well for people who will be redeeming shares in the short term. Class C shares are, I'm going to buy this fund because I think it's going to double in value in six months and I'm going to dump it. Class C shares are better for people that are going to trade mutual funds like a stock. Instead, of, and What I want to do is I want to be a trader. I want to hold this thing for 90 days or six months, and I want to dump it. And I believe that the mid-cap sector is going to do really good over the next six months, but I don't want to risk picking the wrong company. So I go in and pick a strong, performing mutual fund company that does good in that sector. I buy shares in their fund, and I'm trading it. That's not all that C shares are used for, but that's most likely what they're used for. The, the, the good stuff, no front-end fee. So just like a B-share, I don't pay that fee up front. If I buy $10,000 worth of ABC Mutual Fund, I get $10,000 worth. Small back-end load. So while I'm holding it, while I'm holding it, my fee is actually very low. I also have an opportunity to avoid back-end load. Uh, it's normally removed after the shares have been held for one year. So if I'll come in as a, as a trader but stay as an investor, they'll pull off my back and load some. Uh, the cons are there is a back and load uh, that's charged if the funds are withdrawn in the first year. So if I don't hold it for a year, if I do that trading, I'm going to pay a fee, generally about 1%. Uh, they also have higher expense ratios. So I actually pay a lower expense ratio than Class B, but higher than Class A. So that, that yearly management fee that they charge me just to hold my money is higher in C than A, and it's higher in B than C. Why? Why is B higher than C? The C share will never convert. It will always be a C share. 
the B share will eventually become an A share in time. So that's why the B is the most expensive in the short term uh, with fees. Because I don't pay up front, and eventually I stop paying as much on the back end load. All right? Um, so that is kind of what a C share is. Um, and that's another disadvantage. You don't get any conversion. The C, again, the C share will always be a C share. You also don't get any discounts. Doesn't matter how many you buy, that's what they cost. It's just like buying a stock. Again, best way to think of it as a C share is like buying stock, uh, for trading. A B share, little, you'll have a lot of money up front, but you're going to be a long-term investor. An A share, you have a sizable investment, a sizable commitment to the investment, a sizable time commitment to the investment, and you want the best deal over time, so you're paying your fees up front in return for less cost over the duration. For most people who listen to this audience, B shares will work best for you. Because they don't require you to make huge upfront investments, they don't require letters of intent, and they give you the most flexibility where you can still trade out uh, relatively inexpensively, but if you end up staying, they'll convert to Class A's. All right? If you're short time horizon, think Class C. That's, that's the best I can do for you on that one. And last today I wanted to finish up with what is an annuity, because this is the thing that we have thrown around, and we have all types of words attached, attached to annuity. Lifetime annuity, tax-deferred annuity, um, you know, uh, what it, what it, uh, tax-free annuity, um, life annuity. I mean, there's uh, anything you can think of, you can now probably put in front of an annuity. Well, what is an annuity, first of all? So that, because this is something I think a lot of people get into annuities without understanding what they are, because they're told, oh, this will just pay you money in the future. It'll pay you, and I show you a number of how much money it's going to pay. So an annuity is basically really simple to understand. It's just a financial contract in the form of an insurance product, according to which uh, the people who sell it to you, typically a financial institution like a life insurance company, Agree to make a series of future payments to you in exchange for immediate payment of a lump sum or a series of regular payments that they'll call an investment. And what they're saying is, look, here's what we'll do. If you'll put $50 a month in this account and you're 25 years old, starting when you're 60 years old, we'll send you a check for $600 a month for a certain period of time. Now, that period of time could be 20 years, it could be 10 years, it could be 15 years. It always varies with the annuity and what you're dealing with. It could be until you die. It could be until you die with a guaranteed benefit. What that would mean is, let's say you, you have this annuity and they guarantee you that this annuity is worth a minimum of $50,000 or will be paid to you until death plus the guaranteed benefit. So... What that would mean, and again, there's a million ways to skin these things, so if you know of one that's different, it's just a different annuity. The way that one would work is I turn 60 and I start getting my, uh, my $600 a month. I get that for, uh, for, for 10 months, and that's uh, $6,000. But my guaranteed benefit, let's say, was $100,000. I guarantee you you'll get at least $100,000 minimum out of this. In that situation, whoever I left the annuity to, would receive in the form of basically life insurance um, $92,000 or $94,000, the balance of the guarantee. If I live a really long time, the people I bought the annuity from might pay me $200,000 in payments or three, depending on how long I live. 
They're making a bet. When will you die? If it's a life annuity or a life insurance style annuity. Another way to look at it is it's like buying life insurance that you, when you don't die, you take your own life insurance back out and depreciate the payout value of the life insurance over time. None of these people do this out of charity, folks. They make a profit on your money. And they hold your money for a very long time to do it. That's what an annuity is. But it can, annuity can be short. It can be a long annuity. It can, it can have a million different permutations. What I don't ever want anybody to do, because you're afraid of the future, is let a financial advisor or worse, an insurance salesman come into your life and talk you to putting 100% of your cash equivalent investments into any annuities. And usually they'll do it into one. And usually that takes the form of some type of a whole life with annuity attachment or universal whole life. It is one of the worst things to do with your money in the world. Note, I did not say all annuities were bad. I said these annuities that these types of people sell to you that take all of your money and put them in a place where they give you all these miraculous reasons why it's safe and perfect and special are terrible places to lock up all of your money. Because all annuities come in the form of contracts which are very specific and quite limiting. When you have an annuity and you can't get to it till you're 60, you can't get to it till you're 60. Whatever the terms of the contract are, now there's often times where, where you can get a portion of it back and things like this, but whatever the terms are, the terms are. And when that guy that smiles at you gets you to sign that little line at the bottom of it for that annuity, especially when you're an older person, and there's a lot of this crap going on out there right now. We've got very slick people, you know, and they're going out and they're talking to these people that are near retirement or in retirement that have been lied to by a financial advisor that have been told that just, you know, your money will be fine, just leave it there, it'll keep accumulating, the market will keep going up, you need the dividends, whatever. And they go in and they say, look, you just saw what happened to the stock market, and it's in really bad shape, and I'm sorry you lost all that money. Let's convert this all to an annuity. I will guarantee you a check for X for the rest of your life. You will never lose. You will get at least this much forever, like Social Security, but with your own money. And a lot of these older people are just rolling over into these things without actually understanding what, what's there as a death benefit. How long does the annuity last? What else could I do with this money? Maybe putting some of it there is not a bad thing. Should I put it all? And of course the guy that gets a commission to sell it to you smiles and says, oh, absolutely you should put it all there. Where, how much of your money do you want to be safe? Part or all? So that's an annuity. And again, an annuity isn't bad or good in and of itself. It's just a single arrow in the quiver of the investor. I mean, that's that's the best way I can put it to you. So hopefully this has been a good show today. I know I talked about some confusing subjects. This is not even a show that I really enjoy doing that much because I don't get to put a lot of my passion into a show like this. I don't. It's, it's very difficult for me to take a show like this and steer you uh, with it into a place where you end up more energized because these are dry subjects and they're subjects that are somewhat, some are easy and some are complex. But what I hope is that after the show a couple of things happen. One, you start to realize that all of this mysticism isn't that complicated. It really isn't at all. It's not hard. It's just a matter of vocabulary. Number two, when you hear reports on the news and they start throwing around words and they start putting opinion with those words, you don't just fall in line with the opinion without understanding the words. Three, that combined with yesterday's show, which was a lot more practical investing knowledge, you start to take responsibility for your own money. 
I, I am fed up with America in some ways. I really am. We have abjucated everything in America. People tell us when to eat, when to sleep, what to eat, uh, what time to show up, what time to go home, and what to do with our money. They tell us what vaccinations to take. They tell us what medicine to take. They tell us what, what version of history to believe. The news tells us what version of current events to believe. We're told everything, how to think, how to act, how to be. The most personal thing that there is that's, that should be under your control should be the results of your labor. And that is symbolized with money today. You work your ass off to earn money and then you take the responsibility for that money and you give it to somebody else because he wore a suit and tie and smiled and shook your hand the right way because he was trained to do that instead of know what to do with your money. I want you in control of your own money. I want you to realize that these things aren't that hard to understand. I don't want anybody to listen to this show and think, I'm going to go out and start options trading today. That would have been a bad idea. I don't options trade. I don't do it. I've written a few covered calls in my time, and that's the only options trading I've ever been willing to do. And why? Because I completely understand the investment. I completely understand its risks. And I see it as almost a no-risk investment. If I'm holding stock at $10 a share, I'm holding it anyway. And I write the, 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 somebody else the right to purchase it at a profit in the future. The worst I can do is make 10 or 20% on my investment instead of making 30% or 40% if it went way up. And I get the fee. Completely understand the investment. I completely understand the risk. I completely understand that if the stock starts to go down, I may have to hold it in fear that it could turn around and go back up, and I would have to cover the call without the security. So I'm going to be stuck holding it for that period of time if I want it to be covered. I understand that. And I don't, even though I've explained shorting to you and naked shorting and naked calls, I don't fully understand them. I get them on the service. I can give you the book definition of them. I can tell you how they basically work. But I can't spit it out like I just did there with a covered call. So since I don't completely understand the investment, I don't go into that investment. And that's what I want you to take away from this. If you don't completely understand an investment, don't go there. Take the time to research and understand. That. Notice I didn't say research and understand the company. That's bullshit. Research and understand the investment. If you don't basically understand what it means to buy, hold, and sell stock, don't do it. Buy, sell, and hold uh, a mutual fund, don't do it. Learn first. When you learn what it means, when you learn how it works, when you understand it, and I don't mean every nuance and all this formulaic bullshit, I just mean the basic concepts and understanding where you can say, hey, this is how this works. Until you have that, you'll never be able to manage it, control it, and watch over it yourself. You need to be watching over your own money. Do that. And you'll be taking a big step toward ensuring your financial future because it's going to be very important. There are hard times ahead for America. No matter how big this false recovery gets, there will be another slide off the backside. It could be into oblivion or it could be where we've just been or it could be somewhere in between the two. I don't know. But I know if you're in control and you're paying attention, you'll suffer less and you'll have more. That's a great way to start living that better life. Times get tough or even if they don't. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Yeah.
Nobody up there cares They're leaving 